0: Section 10 of A Collection of the Facts and Documents Relative to the Death of Major General Alexander Hamilton by William Coleman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 5 Continued. The Albany Sentinel of August 29th presents us with the following affecting article Incidental circumstances have prevented our noticing of late many passing occurrences of the day as they deserve. One of these, and which we consider by no means the least interesting, is the manner in which our Supreme Court testified their respect for the character of General Hamilton and deep affliction for his death at their session in this city, which closed on the 18th instant. By direction of the judges, the bench, the bar, including the seats of the counselors and attorneys, the clerk's desk and table, and the wall back of the judge's seat, were hung in black during the term footnote the same mark of respect was paid to his memory by the mayor's court in this city where Mr. Clinton presides and footnote in no place perhaps could a tribute of this kind have been offered with a more striking effect it is here more than anywhere that all who have attended court with whatever motive feel the deprivation of its late peerless member It is here we recollect our first inquiries used to be, as if every gratification depended upon it. Is Hamilton in town? And if present, his engaging address and his intelligent eye never failed to interest us, to raise our expectations. When he began, we were attentive, an harmonious voice, select expressions, elevated sentiment. He divided his subject, we perceived his distinctions nothing perplexed nothing insipid nothing languid he unfolded the web of his argument we were enthralled he refuted the sophism we were freed he introduced a pertinent narrative we were interested he modulated his voice we were charmed he was jocular we smiled he pressed serious truths we yielded to their force he addressed the passions the tears glided down our cheeks. And had he raised his voice in anger, we should have trembled and wished ourselves away. Here and in him have we often seen the human character raised to its noontide point. Alas, how chilling is this sable contrast. Who can read without heartfelt emotion the subsequent communication from the same paper? Communication. Communication. On Sunday morning, the afflicted Mrs. Hamilton attended divine service in the Presbyterian Church in this city with her three little sons. At the close of a prayer by the Reverend Mr. Knott, the eldest dropped on his face in a fainting fit. Two gentlemen immediately raised him, and while bearing him out of the church, the afflicted mother sprung forward in the agonies of grief and despair towards her apparently lifeless son. The heart-rending scene she had recently struggled with, called forth all the fine-spun sensibilities of her nature, and seemed to say that nature must and will be indulged in her keenest sorrows. She was overpowered in the conflict and likewise sunk, uttering such heart-rending groans and inward sighs as would have melted into mingled sympathies even Burr himself. Both of them soon recovered, and while the little son was supported standing on the steps, yet speechless, the most affecting scene presented itself. A scene, could it be placed on canvas by the hand of a master, would be in the highest degree interesting and impressive. The mother, in this tender situation, fastened herself upon the son, with her head reclining on his left shoulder, the agonies so strongly painted on her countenance, her long flowing weeds, the majesty of her person, the position of both and above all, the peculiarity of their trying situation in the recent loss of a husband and a father. Who could refrain from invoking on the head of the guilty author of their miseries those curses he so rightly merits? The curse of living despised and execrated by the voice of a whole nation, the curse of being held up to the view of future ages, a monster and an assassin. The following pious extract from a late sermon delivered in the northern part of this state is well calculated to produce the most salutary effect. From the Lansingburg Gazette. Extract from a sermon on the death of General Hamilton delivered in this village by the Reverend Mr. Blatchford on Sunday, the 22nd Ultimate. Again, is not a preparation for death and eternity a part of true honor? and. What if thou shouldst thyself fall in the contest? How dreadful are the consequences! A state of horror, distraction, malice, revenge, remorse. Torn in a moment from all the delights of life and all the advantages of a time of probation for eternity. Is this the temper which becomes a dying hour? That hour we all would wish tranquil and serene, undisturbed by passion, unagitated by care full of penitence, humility, gratitude, and submission, that we may meditate the awful change and resign with composure our parting souls into the hands of the Creator. Alas, how different is this from that scene of frenzy we have been contemplating! But how much is the interest of these remarks increased by the intimation of eternity? Remember, O oh man, that the soul which now animates thy frame is destined to survive the pang of disillusion. Allow me, therefore, to reason with thee a little before thou committest the act of madness. Pause. Ponder. Where art thou? Whither art thou going? What mayest thou soon be? Thou art about to launch into that awful ocean whose domains are unbounded and unknown. Thou art standing upon the very brink of eternity. Eternity, what art thou? Our faculties are lost in the contemplation of thee. We soar. We stretch but all is dark beyond. No one is permitted to return and bring us tidings of Thee. Yet let us not be presumptuously inquisitive. A short time hence, and we shall explore Thy vast dominions. We then shall know what it is to die. But, O Thou all-wise disposer, forbid that solemn hour should find us unprepared, much less that we should accelerate its approach. No, all the days of my appointed time will I wait, till my change come. Thou rash adventurer, let conscience speak. Hold thy impious hand. Forbear a crime at which thy heart recoils, which thy reason condemns, which Christianity has accursed, at which angels weep, the devils triumph, and to punish which the red flaming sword of justice is for ever unsheathed. But supposing thou shouldst survive, and be the means of the death of the man whose ruin thou didst predetermine. We then proceed to ask, Is it not honorable to prevent distress? To soothe the tender heart, ready to break for anguish? To heal the wounds of the widow's soul, and dry up the tears of the orphan? To secure thy country, talents which dazzle by their luster, and in their exertion have an irresistible and commanding influence? Thy act, then, must be stamped with the deepest turpitude, and be sealed with the broadest mark of infamy. Perhaps thine antagonist, whom thou hast drawn into the field, is the father of a numerous family, and the husband of an affectionate wife. Methinks I see the disconsolate widow which thou hast made, wringing her hands in anguish, and pouring out her soul in unavailing tears. Thou hast plunged a dagger into a heart that never offended thee, O desperate ruffian! Didst thou not reflect upon the barbarous deed? Was there nothing in female helplessness, widowed and alone, to stay thine hand? But oh, what sight is here! Here are seven lovely children, and one of them an infant. Thou hast made them orphans, and left them to a precarious fate. Dost thou not hear their distressful cries? Dost thou not see their gushing tears? thou hast left them unprotected in a dangerous world and rudely deprived them of the tender hand which might have led them to virtue and to usefulness they cry in vain upon their sire thou hast sent him to the silent tomb and they shall see his face no more But perhaps thou hast stained thine hands with the blood of a patriot, whose uncommon genius was exerted in early life to save that country which gave thee birth, and which thou art bound to respect by the most solemn and imposing obligations. Was there nothing in the fair character of his honor to restrain the weapon of destruction? Did you not reflect upon his well-earned fame, or was it envy of his greatness which prompted the savage deed? Did you not think upon a country in tears, and in the impulse of veneration universally to be paid to the memory of the departed hero, hear the execration of thy act? But perhaps he stood high in professional merit, and his eloquence and his knowledge gave him the first place in public admiration and distinction. Was there nothing in his illustrious talents to soften thy spirit and make thee distrust thy own rashness? No, nothing in this, nor in any of these, to restrain thy fury. Thou hast accomplished the fatal purpose. Thou hast mocked the tears of the widow, neglected the cries of the orphans, injured thy country in the death of her magnanimous friend, and stifled eloquence and genius in the destruction of their favorite son. My brethren, this is not a fancied picture, for Hamilton is slain. He who was the associate of your beloved Washington, and as he himself expresses it, his principal and most confidential aide, whose acknowledged abilities and integrity placed him on high ground, and made him a conspicuous character in the United States and even in Europe, is slain. He is no more, of whom the father of your country declared, that his ambition was of that laudable kind which prompts a man to excel in whatever he takes in hand, who is enterprising, quick in his perceptions, and in his judgment intuitively great. Footnote. Vide Washington's letter to President Adams recommending General Hamilton as second-in-command in the late Army of the United States. End footnote. Will you not, my brethren, deeply regret the cause of his death whilst you mourn the death itself? The following proceedings of the Cincinnati at Charleston will be read with uncommon interest by every good man, and we hope be followed by a similar measure here and elsewhere. From the Charleston Courier. Mr. Editor, please to insert in your paper, for the information of the public, the following circular letter and memorial which have been agreed upon by the Joint Committee of the State Society of Cincinnati and of the American Revolution Society, in pursuance of resolutions adopted by these societies. Charleston, South Carolina, September twelfth, eighteen o four. Sir, Having been appointed by the South Carolina State Society of the Cincinnati and the American Revolution Society, a joint committee for drafting and circulating a memorial to the legislature, praying for legislative interference to restrain the practice of dueling, we have agreed on the enclosed memorial and transmitted to you with our earnest request that you would use your most vigorous exertions to have it generally signed. It is unnecessary to dilate on the mischievous consequences of dueling to induce your endeavors to check a practice so dishonorable to this state in which it is our boast to be governed by laws and not by men. The necessity of applying to the legislature on the subject is obvious, for it is well known that the existing laws have never brought any duelist to serious inconveniences, and there is a well-founded reason for believing that they never can in consequence of the weight of precedence to the contrary. Our only alternative, therefore, is to acquiesce in the practice of dueling or to restrain it by a new law. The difficulties of framing any law that may afford an adequate remedy to the evil are great, but not insurmountable. It is not to be supposed that our legislature is less wise than that of several of our sister states, whose laws have been so operative that in several of them duels are absolutely unknown. If a respectable number of the friends of good government, morality, and religion sign the memorial we have forwarded, or any similar one, the legislature, ever attentive to the wishes of their constituents, will enter seriously on the business, and we doubt not of their ability to frame such regulations as will certainly abolish the evil. Independent of any law which may be passed, the sentiments of the most respectable part of the community in opposition to dueling declared and avowed by signing the memorial will have a very beneficial effect. It will tend to correct the public opinion and to restrain all who wish for the esteem of their fellow citizens from engaging in a practice which the virtue and good sense of the community have so pointedly denounced. These and many other arguments which must occur on reflection will be sufficient to convince you, that in procuring signers to the memorial, you will do a service acceptable to God and beneficial to man. We have further to request you to forward the memorial to Columbia by the first Monday in November next, that they may all be presented together to the legislature on the first day of their meeting, when we hope for the sublime pleasure of seeing an abhorrence of dueling pointedly expressed by many thousands of our most deserving citizens. We are, with great respect, your most obedient servants, Charles C Pickney, James Kennedy, William Red, Committee of the Cincinnati, David Ramsey, Henry W. DeSaucer, William Allen Dees, James Lowndes, Richard Furman, Committee of the American Revolution Society, PS. Impressed with the firm belief that many advantages would result from illuminating the public mind on the inconsistency of the spirit and principles of the practice against which the memorial is leveled, with the spirit and principles of our holy religion, we earnestly request, as a particular favor, that you would, at some convenient early day, preach a sermon on the sin and folly of dueling. When the public sentiment is correctly made up on this subject, the advocates for dueling will be struck with their inconsistency, in claiming for themselves the high and honorable appellation of christians in our opinion public previous notice of the day on which the proposed sermon will be preached would in general be both proper and useful but on the subject you will judge for yourself nb the above postscript is omitted in all letters which are not addressed to clergymen to the honorable the President and members of the Senate, and the Honorable, the Speaker, and the other members of the House of Representatives of the State of South Carolina. The Memorial of the Subscribers, citizens of the said state, showeth that your memorialists are deeply impressed with grief at the prevalence of the custom of dueling, which trampling upon all laws, human and divine, sweeps off many useful citizens, leaving their families a prey to sorrow and often to poverty and vice that this custom originated in dark and barbarous ages when a regular and impartial administration of justice was unknown and unpracticed, but it ought not to be tolerated by the civilization of modern times, under a legislation which has provided or may easily provide adequate redress for all serious injuries committed against the life, liberty, fame, or property of the citizen, that this custom erects a tribunal for the settlement of personal differences, which contrary to all sound principles, a man becomes the sole judge in his own cause, whence, as might have been expected from such a code, the only punishments for the lowest as well as highest offenses are written in blood. That restraining personal resentments by giving the attribute of vengeance to the laws was the greatest victory obtained by civilization over barbarism, but the custom of dueling is too well calculated to defeat the beneficial effects of that triumph, and to weaken the authority of all laws by accustoming men to contemn their sanctions. That your memorialists are apprehensive from the frequency of the practice of late years, that this custom is gaining ground and seems likely to be carried to such great lengths, as to degrade men to the condition of gladiators, and to introduce anew the reign of barbarism. That from the nature of the human mind, men are ever ready to follow examples, especially those set by eminent persons, When, therefore, the body of the community perceives great and, in other respects, virtuous citizens shedding each other's blood on slight provocations or trivial pretenses, the fatal practice becomes general. That in countries where distinctions of rank are sanctioned, a pernicious custom may exist and be confined to the higher orders of society, and be comparatively little destructive. But that, in our country of equal laws, rights and ranks— such custom if unchecked by the laws will necessarily become general and spread its destructive effects far and wide in the community to the desolation of thousands of families that this mortal vengeance is not resorted to merely in cases of grievous injuries for which the laws may not have provided an adequate remedy but in many cases of trivial offense which a generous mind would willingly pardon this tyrant custom is supposed to impose an obligation to call out to the field of blood even a companion or friend who may have unguardedly given the provocation. That this absurd custom decides no right and settles no point, as the religion and philosophy of modern times will not admit, that the almighty disposer of events will interpose his power on such an impious appeal to his justice, which the credulity of the Gothic nations believed when this custom existed among them in the form of judicial combat." It is therefore conceded universally that the innocent and aggrieved person is as likely to be the victim as the guilty offender, and probably more so as a mild and peaceable man would be less inclined to acquire or exert a murderous skill, the effect of which he abhors. That the pretense of those who would excuse this custom on the ground that it polishes society and prevents assassination is wholly unfounded. As the most polished nations of ancient times, the Grecians and Romans, and the most humane and civilized nation of modern times, the Chinese, have enjoyed society and perfection without the adventitious aid of this pernicious and unnatural custom, which, though in direct hostility to the principles of Christianity, prevails only in Christian Europe and America. Your memorialists have been informed that although the common law of the land declares homicide in a duel, to be murder. The law has become obsolete and a dead letter, that all the decisions in our courts of justice have turned wholly on the fairness with which the duel was conducted, and verdicts of acquittal or of manslaughter have constantly been rendered. Thence arises a necessity for a clear and explicit expression of the legislative will on this important subject, guaranteed by new and vigorous sanctions." Your memorialists therefore humbly pray that your Honorable House would be pleased to take this important subject into your most serious consideration, and that you would, in your wisdom, provide such remedies as may effectually destroy the evil practice complained of by regulations wisely calculated to protect the fame and feelings of the innocent and insulted person, and to punish rigorously the bold offender who should dare to lift his hand against his neighbor and shed his blood in a duel in a violation of the divine law and the law of his country. We suspect the following affectionate tribute of the Scottish muse, which is taken from a paper in the county of Washington, state of Pennsylvania, is from the well-known pen of Mr. Bruce, whose little volume of poetry has, not long since, been perused by us with high admiration. From the Western Telegraph, General Hamilton, having been a member of the St. Andrew's Society of the City of New York, the following verses will not be unacceptable to the members of that society throughout the Union, particularly to such of them as are native Scotsmen. The subject undoubtedly claims a much higher species of poetry, but there is none in which the simple and genuine feelings of nature can be so happily expressed as that which I have adopted. On the murder of Hamilton, a Scotch ballad, tune, Good night and joy be with ye. O woe betide ye, Aaron Burr! May mickle curse upon ye fall! Ye've killed as brave a gentleman as e'er lived in America. With bloody mind ye cait him out. With practised eye did on him draw, and with deliberate, murderous aim ye killed the flower of America. A nobler heart, an abler head, nor this nor any nation saw. He was his country's hope and pride, the darling of America. What now, like him, with tempered fire, his country's sword will strongly draw, and mid the furious onset spare the vanquished foes of America? What now, like him, with honest zeal, will argue in the Senate hall, and lighten with his genius rays the interests of America? Mild, mild was he, O tenderest heart, kind and sincere without a flaw, a loving husband, father, friend, and oh, he loved America! Torn by a murderer's desperate arm, frae midst his friends and family, ah, uh, he's gone. The first of men is gone. The glory of America, where'er ye go, O oh Aaron Burr, the worm of conscience I will gnaw. Your haunted fancy I will paint. Your bloody deed in America, but though ye flee o'er land and sea and scape your injured country's law, the red right hand of angry heaven will yet avenge America. O oh, save us, heaven! Fray factions rage, our headstrong passions keep in awe, and fray ambitions hidden arts. O God, preserve America. The following highly finished sketch, as the author modestly calls it, is taken from the Boston Repertory, the leading federal print of New England. We have no hesitation in pronouncing this sketch, take it together, equal at least, to anything we have on record from the pen of Edmund Burke, whose charming manner it so closely resembles nor is it surpassed by the celebrated character of Chatham by Gradon. Yet it must be owed that it is not uniformly excellent. We mean not to enter into criticism in detail, but in our opinion, the manner in which allusion is made to Greece and Rome is tame and beneath the rest of the piece. Instead of saying such a patriot the best Romans in their best days would have admitted to citizenship and the consulate, and that the name of Hamilton would not have dishonored Greece in the age of Aristides. Would it not have been much nearer the truth and more like the rest of the sketch to have said that had either Greece or Rome ever possessed a citizen who concentrated in himself such vast talents, such disinterested patriotism, so many private virtues, so many amiable qualities, and who had from the purest motives rendered his country such invaluable services as Alexander Hamilton, It would have added a greater luster to the fortunate country who could have claimed the honor of giving birth to such a prodigy than the annals of either can now boast of. The concluding sentence is also in our judgment a little inconsistent with what has preceded and a falling off. The editor of that paper thus refers his readings to this eminently beautiful picture. Reader, do you wish to regale your mind, your taste, your sensibility? Then turn to the first page. Are you curious to know who has furnished you such a repast? He whose writings have long given character, as they have given intelligence, to New England. Footnote. Supposed to be the Honorable Fisher Ames. End footnote. From the Boston Repertory. The following sketch was prepared immediately after the death of the ever-to-be-lamented Hamilton, and was lately read to a select company of friends at whose desire it is published. There are so many persons who, from various causes, possess only a superficial knowledge of the character of eminent men, that it is to be expected the extraordinary marks of grief manifested by the public on the death of General Hamilton will to some appear strange and to others excessive. America, they may say, has produced many great men. Some are dead and others remain alive. Why then should we mourn as if with a sense of desolation and surprise for a loss that by the lot of human nature has already become familiar and why mourn so much as if all was lost when we have so many great men left? But although General Hamilton has for some years withdrawn from public office to the bar and has been in some measure out of the view and contemplation of his countrymen There was nevertheless a splendor in his character that could not be contracted within the ordinary sphere of his employments. It is with really great men, as with great literary works, the excellence of both is best tested by the extent and durableness of their impression. The public has not suddenly, but after an experience of five and twenty years, taken that impression of the just celebrity of Alexander Hamilton, which nothing but his extraordinary intrinsic merit could have made and still less could have made so deep and maintained so long. In this case, it is safe and correct to judge by effects. We sometimes calculate the height of a mountain by measuring the length of its shadow. It is not a party, for party distinctions to the honor of our citizens, be it said, are confounded by the event. It is a nation that weeps for its bereavement. We weep as the Romans did over the ashes of Germanicus. It is a thoughtful, foreboding sorrow that takes possession of the heart and sinks it with no counterfeited heaviness. It is here proper and not invidious to remark that as the emulation excited by conducting great affairs commonly trains and exhibits great talents, it is seldom the case that the fairest and soundest judgment of a great man's merit is to be gained exclusively from his associates in counsel or action. Persons of conspicuous merit themselves are not unfrequently bad judges, and still worse witnesses on this point. Often rivals, sometimes enemies, almost always unjust, and still oftener envious or cold. The opinions they give to the public, as well as those they privately form for themselves, are, of course, discolored with the hue of their prejudices and resentments. But the body of the people, who cannot feel a spirit of rivalship towards those whom they see elevated by nature and education so far above their heads, are more equitable, and supposing a competent time and opportunity for information on the subject, more intelligent judges. Even party rancor, eager to maim the living, scorns to strip the slain. The most hostile passions are soothed or baffled by the fall of their antagonist. Then, if not sooner, the very multitude will fairly decide on character according to their experience of its impression, and as long as virtue, not unfrequently for a time obscured, is ever respectable when distinctly seen, they cannot withhold, and they will not stint their admiration." If, then, the popular estimation is ever to be taken for the true one, the uncommonly profound public sorrow for the death of Alexander Hamilton sufficiently explains and vindicates itself. He had not made himself dear to the passions of the multitude by condescending, in defiance of his honor and conscience, to become their instrument. He is not lamented because a skillful flatterer is now mute forever. It was by the practice of no art, by wearing no disguise. It was not by accident, nor by the levity, nor profligacy of party. But in spite of its malignant misrepresentation, it was by bold and inflexible adherence to truth, by loving his country better than himself, preferring its interest to its favor, and serving it, when it was unwilling and unthankful, in a manner that no other person could, that he rose, and the true popularity... The homage that is paid to virtue followed him. It was not in the power of party or envy to pull him down, but he rose as if some force of attraction drew him to the skies. He rose, and the very prejudice that could not reach was at length almost ready to adore him. It is indeed no imagined wound that inflicts so keen an anguish. Since the news of his death, the novel and strange events of Europe have succeeded each other unregarded. The nation has been enchanted to its subject and broods over its grief, which is more deep than eloquent, which, though dumb, can make itself felt without utterance, and which does not merely pass, but like an electrical shock, at the same instant smites and astonishes as it passes from Georgia to New Hampshire. There is a kind of force put upon our thoughts by this disaster that detains and rivets them to a closer contemplation of those resplendent virtues that are now lost, except to memory, and there they will dwell forever." That writer would deserve the fame of a public benefactor who could exhibit the character of Hamilton with the truth and force that all who intimately knew him conceived it. His example would then take the same ascendant as his talents. The portrait alone, however exquisitely finished, could not inspire genius where it is not. But if the world should again have possession of so rare a gift, it might awaken where it sleeps as by a spark from heaven's own altar. For surely, if there is anything like divinity in man, it is in his admiration of virtue. But who alive can exhibit this portrait? If our age, on that supposition more fruitful than any other, had produced two Hamiltons, one of them might then have depicted the other. To delineate genius, one must feel its power. Hamilton, and he alone, with all its inspiration, could have transfused its whole fervid soul into the picture and swelled its lineaments into life. The writer's mind, expanding with his own enthusiasm and glowing with kindred fires, would then have stretched to the dimensions of his subject. Such is the infirmity of human nature. It is very difficult for a man, who is greatly the superior of his associates, to preserve their friendship without abatement. Yet though Hamilton could not possibly conceal his superiority, he was so little inclined to display it, He was so much at ease in its possession that no jealousy or envy chilled his bosom when his friends obtained praise. He was indeed so entirely the friend of his friends, so magnanimous, so superior, or more properly so insensible to all exclusive selfishness of spirit, so frank, so ardent, yet so little overbearing, so much trusted, admired, beloved, almost adored— that his power over their affections was entire and lasted through his life. We do not believe that he left any worthy man his foe who had ever been his friend. Men of the most elevated minds have not always the readiest discernment of character. Perhaps he was sometimes too sudden and too lavish in bestowing his confidence. His manly spirit, disdaining artifice, suspected none. But while the power of his friends over him seemed to have no limits, and really had none, in respect to those things which were of a nature to be yielded, no man, not the Roman Cato himself, was more inflexible on every point that touched, or only seemed to touch, integrity and honor. With him it was not enough to be unsuspected. His bosom would have glowed like a furnace at its own whispers of reproach. Mere purity would have seemed to him below praise, and such were his habits and such his nature, that the pecuniary temptations, which many others can, only with great exertion and self-denial resist, had no attractions for him. He was very far from obstinate, yet as his friends assailed his opinions with less profound thoughts than he had devoted to them, they were seldom shaken by discussion. He defended them, however, with as much mildness as force and evinced that, if he did not yield, it was not for want of gentleness or modesty. The tears that flow on this fond recital will never dry up. My heart, penetrated with the remembrance of the man, grows liquid as I write, and I could pour it out like water. I could weep, too, for my country, which, mournful as it is, does not know the half of its loss. It deeply laments when it turns its eyes back and sees what Hamilton was, but my soul stiffens with despair when I think what Hamilton would have been. His social affections and his private virtues are not, however, so properly the object of public attention as the conspicuous and commanding qualities that gave him his fame and influence in the world. It is not as Apollo enchanting the shepherds with his lyre, it is as Hercules, treacherously slain in the midst of his unfinished labors, leaving the world overrun with monsters, that we most deeply deplore him his early life we pass over. Though his heroic spirit in the army has furnished a theme that is dear to patriotism, it will be sacred to glory. In all the different stations in which a life of active usefulness has placed him, we find him not more remarkably distinguished by the extent than by the variety and versatility of his talents. In every place he made it apparent that no other man could have filled it so well, and in times of critical importance in which alone he desired employment, his services were justly deemed indispensable. As Secretary of the Treasury, his was the powerful spirit that presided over the chaos. Confusion heard his voice, and wild uproar stood ruled. Indeed, in organizing the federal government in 1789, every man of either sense or candor will allow, the difficulty seemed greater than the first-rate abilities could surmount the event has shown that his abilities were greater than those difficulties. He surmounted them, and Washington's administration was the most wise and beneficent, the most prosperous, and ought to be the most popular that ever was entrusted with the affairs of a nation. Great as was Washington's merit, much of it in plan, much in execution, will, of course, devolve upon his minister. As a lawyer, his comprehensive genius reached the principles of his profession— He compassed its extent, he fathomed its profound, perhaps even more familiarly and easily, than the ordinary rules of its practice. With most men, law is a trade, with him, it was a science. As a statesman, he was not more distinguished by the great extent of his views than by the caution with which he provided against impediments and the watchfulness of his care over right and the liberty of the subject. In none of the many revenue bills which he framed, though committees reported them, is there to be found a single clause that savors of despotic power, not one that the sagest champions of law and liberty would, on that ground, hesitate to approve and adopt. It is rare that a man who owes so much to nature descends to seek more from industry. But he seemed to depend on industry as if nature had done nothing for him. His habits of investigation were very remarkable. His mind seemed to cling to his subject till he had exhausted it. Hence the uncommon superiority of his reasoning powers, a superiority that seemed to be augmented from every source and to be fortified by every auxiliary, learning, taste, wit, imagination, and eloquence. These were embellished and enforced by his temper and manners, by his fame and his virtues. It is difficult, in the midst of such various excellence, to say what in particular the effect of his greatness was most manifest. No man more promptly discerned truth. No man more clearly displayed it. It was not merely made visible. It seemed to come bright with illumination from his lips. But prompt and clear as he was, fervid as Demosthenes, like Cicero full of resource, He was not less remarkable for the copiousness and completeness of his argument, that left little for cavil and nothing for doubt. Some men take their strongest argument as a weapon and use no other, but he left nothing to be inquired for more, nothing to be answered. He not only disarmed his adversaries of their pretexts and objections, but he stripped them of all excuse for having urged them. He confounded and subdued as well as convinced. He indemnified them, however, by making his discussion a complete map of his subject, so that his opponents might indeed feel ashamed of their mistakes, but they could not repeat them. In fact, it was no common effort that could preserve a really able antagonist from becoming his convert. For the truth, which his researches so distinctly presented to the understanding of others, was rendered almost irresistibly commanding and impressive by the love and reverence of which it was ever apparent, he profoundly cherished for it in his own. While patriotism glowed in his heart, wisdom blended in his speech, her authority with her charms. Such also is the character of his writings. Judiciously collected, they will be a public treasure. No man ever more disdained duplicity or carried frankness further than he. This gave to his political opponent some temporary advantages, and currency to some popular prejudices, which he would have lived down if his death had not prematurely dispelled them. He knew that factions have ever in the end prevailed in free states, and as he saw no security, and who living can see any adequate against the destruction of that liberty which he loved, and for which he was ever ready to devote his life, He spoke at all times according to his anxious forebodings, and his enemies interpreted all that he said according to the supposed interest of their party. But he ever extorted confidence even when he most provoked opposition. It was impossible to deny that he was a patriot, and such a patriot, seeking neither popularity nor office, without artifice, without meanness, the best Romans in their best days would have admitted to citizenship and to the consulate." virtue so rare, so pure, so bold, by its very purity and excellence, inspired suspicion as a prodigy. His enemies judged of him by themselves. So splendid and arduous were his services, they could not find it in their hearts to believe that they were disinterested. Unparalleled as they were, they were nevertheless no otherwise requited than by the applause of all good men, and by his own enjoyment of the spectacle of that national prosperity and consideration which was the effect of them. After facing calumny and triumphantly surmounting an unrelenting persecution, he retired from office with clean, though empty, hands, as rich as reputation and an unblemished integrity could make him. Some have plausibly, though erroneously, inferred from the great extent of his abilities that his ambition was inordinate. This is a mistake." Such men as have a painful consciousness that their stations happen to be far more exalted than their talents are generally the most ambitious. Hamilton, on the contrary, though he had many competitors, had no rivals, for he did not thirst for power, nor would he, as it was well known, descend to office. Of course he suffered no pain from envy when bad men rose, though he felt anxiety for the public. He was perfectly content and at ease in private life. Of what was he ambitious? Not of wealth. No man held it cheaper. Was it of popularity? That weed of the dunghill he knew, when rankest, was nearest to withering. There is no doubt that being conscious of his powers he desired glory, which to most men is too inaccessible to be an object of desire. But feeling his own force, and that he was tall enough to reach the top of Pindus or of Helicon, he longed to deck his brow with the wreath of immortality. A vulgar ambition could as little comprehend as satisfy his views. He thirsted only for that fame that virtue would not blush to confer, nor time to convey to the end of his course. The only ordinary distinction to which we confess he did aspire was military, and for that, in the event of a foreign war, he would have been solicitous. He undoubtedly discovered the predominance of a soldier's feelings. And all that is honor, in the character of a soldier, was at home in his heart. His early education was in the camp. There the first fervors of his genius were poured forth, and his earliest and most cordial friendships formed. There he became enamored of glory, and was admitted to its embrace. Those who knew him best, and especially in the army, will believe that if occasion had called him forth, he was qualified beyond any man of the age to display the talent of a great general. It may be very long before our country will want such military talents. It will probably be much longer before it will again possess them. Alas, the great man who was at all times so much the ornament of our country, and so exclusively fitted in its extremity to be its champion, is withdrawn to a purer and more tranquil region. We are left to endless labors and unavailing regrets. Such honors Ileon, to her hero paid, and peacefully slept the mighty Hector's shade. Our Troy has lost her Hector. The most substantial glory of a country is in its virtuous great men. Its prosperity will depend on its docility to learn from their example. That nation is fated to ignominy and servitude, for which such men have lived in vain." Power may be seized by a nation that is yet barbarous, and wealth may be enjoyed by one that it finds or renders sordid. The one is the gift and the sport of accident, and the other is the sport of power. Both are mutable and have passed away without leaving behind them any other memorial than ruins that offend taste and traditions that baffle conjecture. But the glory of Greece is imperishable or will last as long as learning itself, which is its monument. It strikes an everlasting root and bears perennial blossoms on its grave. The name of Hamilton would not have dishonored Greece in the age of Aristides. May heaven, the guardian of our liberty, grant that our country may be fruitful of Hamilton's and faithful to their glory. Tribute of Respect At a general meeting of the inhabitants of Geneva at Powell's Hotel in the evening of the second instant, agreeably to notice, for the purpose of uniting with their fellow citizens at large, in expressing their unfeigned sorrow and regret at the untimely death of General Alexander Hamilton and the great loss this country has sustained in the death of that invaluable man, Daniel W. Lewis Esquire was called to the chair, who in a solemn and impressive manner opened the meeting, and in a few observations recapitulated the talents, patriotism, and virtues of the deceased, when the following resolutions were unanimously adopted. That this meeting feel the most sensible grief at the death of General Hamilton and with their fellow citizens throughout the Union, deplore and lament the event as a great national loss. That this meeting are impressed with a just sense of the merit attached to the character of the deceased, acquired by his distinguished and highly honorable services rendered to his country as a soldier, his preeminent display of talents and eloquence as a statesman and lawyer, And his exalted principles of honor and integrity as a private citizen do agree as a tribute of respect due to his memory to wear a crepe on the left arm for 30 days and as a further tribute of respect that mr gordon mr wisner and mr heslop be appointed a committee on behalf of this meeting to wait on the reverend mr chapman and request the favor of him to preach a sermon tomorrow afternoon adapted to the occasion and the inhabitants of the village are requested to meet at four o'clock in the afternoon to form a solemn procession to the meeting house. William M. Collier, Secretary Agreeably to the above arrangements, the inhabitants of the village met and formed a procession to the house of worship when the Reverend Mr. Chapman delivered a sermon on the above occasion from Hosea chapter 4th, part of verse 3rd. Therefore shall the land mourn. End of section 10. End of a collection of the facts and documents relative to the death of Major General Alexander Hamilton by William Coleman.